You are listening to the Radiothon. And by the way, we are five years old. You can tell it's late at night, can't you, Daniel? Very professional start. It's a very professional start. He's played the wrong trailer, so just chat amongst yourselves for a moment while we get the right one out. Shall we try again? Yeah, I think we should. After that, it can only get better. That's once more like it. A very good evening to you listening to Lionheart Radio, your very own community radio station. Five years old today, the start of hour 15 of our 24-hour sponsored broadcast. Richard Dale and Daniel Mumby with the night shift. Yes, it feels very odd to be saying good evening, although yes, even yes. though we're not at 10 in the morning, we're still as bedraggled as ever. Yes. Anyway, Lionheart Radio on the air, live until 9 o'clock um, tomorrow morning. And, of course, if you're listening to this on the podcast, well, just imagine you've enjoyed it for the last 14 hours. It's been a wonderful 14 it's hours. I've indeed. been listening to all of it. Right, so let's first of all say that this hour has been very kindly sponsored by uh, NE Money and also the... Uh, North Sheffield Carriage Riding for the Disabled. And very thanks kind of to both of them. Both of them for that very kind sponsorship because the whole purpose of this 24 hours is to raise some money to help keep community radio on the air here in Annick, as well as celebrating being a birthday yeah i mean we haven't been doing this show quite as long yes. as that but uh, give oh. us a bit more money and we can do it for yes. five years yes it's, but it's, it's over four and a half years since i started so yes uh, i feel you've, you've I feel, earned the slice I of cake feel an old timer yes i'm cake yes yes anyway if you're not normally listening on a saturday morning the whole purpose of this is to have a look what's happening in the movie scene isn't it yes it is uh, we started this uh, program when i was uh, uh, t- two years ago when I just started on Lionheart Radio and that was in the hands of the erstwhile Paul Young yes. who uh, was involved uh, and then you took over that when he uh, yes. when he moved on to Pastures New and we've been yes. going strong ever since. Oh, seeing his girlfriend or something. Yes, in Whitley Bay. But yes. the less said about that the better. <laughs> We'd have had him back otherwise. If you're listening, Paul. Yes, thank you very much for, uh, <laughs> for all your contributions. Anyway, we should say... We do this every Saturday morning and we have a cult film and look at what's on in the cinemas and the top ten and all that. But, uh, well, tonight's after the watershed. Yes, it is. So, so we should say that um, there may be uh, one or two bits of uh, language that we wouldn't normally have on a Saturday morning. Exactly. And but it you, is after the watershed. Exactly. And if you are listening on the podcast, they will be bleeped out. So make You'll sure wonder what the fuss was about. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, Shall we start by having a look at what's going on locally? I think that's a very good place to start. Right. Wednesday night at the Playhouse, uh, two films, first of all, two o'clock in the afternoon, it's The Muppets! we will come to, because it's, it's unbelievably still in the top ten, and you should go and see it. And, uh, one film in the evening, which is very believably not in the top ten, and I don't think it ever was, is W.E. at 7.30. You're absolutely right, it never was, it never will be, it doesn't deserve <laughs> to exist, don't fund Madonna's ego, whatever you do. So, go in the afternoon, and the Playhouse box office number is 01665 five one oh seven eight five and a p- quick pre-warning for you uh may day bank holiday weekend uh second of may 2 p.m and seven thirty is the best exotic marigold hotel yes and we'll have more on that later on in the show as well won't we yes we will right so on to um the maltings in berwick 
Uh, tomorrow at 2.30 is The Muppets again. Yep. Uh, Monday afternoon at 2.30, until we're into holiday season, is Big Miracle. Yeah, which is a kind of made-for-TV documentary, which with, with has mainly got a cinema release because of the fact it stars Drew Barrymore. Do you remember us talking about Dolphin Tale a few weeks or months ago now, about uh, the, the, the dolphin who had an artificial tail for today? Oh, it's yes, based yes. On a true story. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing. This time it's about seals being stuck under the ice, and Drew Barrymore yeah. turns up and does the Hollywood version, and then they show the real thing in the credits. It's right. okay. Okay. Uh, that's also on uh, next Sunday, Easter Day, at 2.30 in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. Right, where do we go after that? Monday evening, 8 o'clock is Chronicle. Yeah, which I'm, I think is very interesting. I mean, it's got a screenplay by Max Landis, son of John Landis, who uh, himself has got back on form recently with Burke and Hare. I think that the found footage motif, as we'll come on to with The Devil Inside, has run its course, but it is an interesting sort of anti-superhero origin story. There are some interesting things in it. All right, it's Tuesday evening at 8 o'clock, and then Wednesday at 2.30 and 8 o'clock, and I'm off to see this one as well. It's The Artist. Yeah, if you haven't seen it already, yourself not included, then yes. what are you doing? It, no, yes. it is, it's, there were no surprises when it won Best Picture. I don't think it was the best film of last year, but it is really, really good. And then Easter Saturday, 2.30, is going to be at The Muppets again. Yes. So, if you want to go up to The Maltings, their box office number is 01289. 330 Yes. So from the local films to the top 10, yes. and we'll have a quick run through. Number 10, as we said, is The Muppets. Yeah, and we should say the Oscar winning Muppets because, of Indeed, course, not that a... song. Yes, Am I a Man or Am I a Muppet? Written, of course, by one half of Flight of the Concords. And there is some discussion about whether the film is appealing to adults more than children because, of course, the adults yourself included will remember the tv series the first time around and how sort of cutting edge and spiky it was yes indeed. um but i do think it is a genuine family film which everyone can enjoy it is self-conscious in the way that the tv series wasn't but it is damned enjoyable yeah not so sure about the humans i think i said that when we were here last week yes you're, you're not so keen on amy adams but uh... um no just the story just okay. the story it's sort of well, maybe it's if they make an, they, they they are going to make another one, and apparently Jason Siegel isn't going to be in it, so maybe it'll just be the Muppets next time round. Yes, because they sort of left them behind. If you saw the end of the yes, film, yeah, 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 you'll know no. what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Okay, the woman in black is number nine, which is still taking bucket loads of money. I mean, it's really good for British filmmaking that it's done so well. I mean, what I like most about it is its effective use of old-fashioned horror tropes. You know, the sort of the dark Gothic house and the creaks and shadows and the occasional jumps. I mean, the the image of it that is stayed with me most is the moment where Daniel Radcliffe is is playing in the children's nursery, which if you know the story of the woman in black is quite central to the story, and he's spinning an old-fashioned Zoe trope and he sees an eye looking through one of the slits and everyone jumps. I mean, I was in a theatre in uh, Finchley Road in London where two people were so scared they ran out. So it's clearly working with its target audience, and you know, even a seasoned horror fan like me was genuinely creeped out by it. So go and see it. Number eight, the one that we previewed last Saturday. Sorry, I've got cake in my mouth. That's all right. Happy birthday and all that. Um, Act of Valor. Yeah, I'm surprised it's taken any money at all. I mean, in terms of being I seem here. to remember you didn't like it. Well, yes. yeah, because it's it's a very much an American film that just happens to be showing in British cinemas. I mean, when you saw the, see the trailer, you think, okay, it's a modern-day equivalent of, you know, Hot Shots or Tropic Thunder, when then, you know, you think it's going to be a spoof, and then you realise that actually it's a deadly serious film with na real-life Navy SEALs playing all the characters, and they can't act. It is essentially pro-military propaganda. I mean, there have been some comparisons with Top Gun because of the fact that Top Gun was used by the military as a way of recruiting people into the Air mm. Force, but at least Top Gun had some decent performances in them. Even Val Kilmer, who's actually quite good in Top Gun. Yes. 
Yes. Tom Cruise, decent performance in one sentence. Gosh. <laughs> um, on to number six and it's contraband. Yeah, um, it's a pretty straightforward... No hang on, have you skipped over one? Uh, John Carter. Uh, oh, yes. yes. Number but, seven. But, but we can do that very quickly because it's yes. terrible. Go and right, see Flash Gordon instead. Ah, there you are. Number six, Contraband. Uh, pretty straightforward nuts and bolts thriller with Mark Wahlberg. You know, it's a remake of an Icelandic thriller. Mark Wahlberg is on board as executive producer. It's fine, but nothing more than fine. No, you can see most of the plot points coming a mile off, but it does its job. Number five, We Bought a Zoo. Yeah, Cameron Crowe partially returning to form after the sickening schmaltz tsunami that was Elizabethtown. I mean, it is very, very predictable and deeply sentimental. I mean, you could watch the trailer and then ask someone, OK, what's going to happen to this character? Who's going to meet him? Is he going to fall in love with her? And they'd give you all the correct answers. But speaking as a conditional fan of Lassa Hellstrom, I am inclined to give this the benefit of the doubt. There you are. Right, you know, I've lost my website here so you tell me what's the next one okay and number four is uh, kick the computer. well again we can go over this quickly and number four is the devil inside which is yet another found footage horror film which has one of the worst endings in recent memory in cinema basically found footage was interesting back in the 90s when you had blair witch and cannibal and um um the last broadcast which were essentially ripping off cannibal holocaust anyway now that it's just you know getting one every other minute it's old we don't believe the conceit move on and the consensus of the critics, The Devil Inside is a cheap, choppy, unscary mess featuring one of the worst endings in recent memory. So yeah, there you because, are. because it doesn't really have any ending, it just right. sort of stops. And now for the film everybody I know is raving about, The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel at number three. Yeah, I mean, I know you're going to see it. I yes. think I'm sorely tempted to join you as, as a kind of birthday treat because I'm <laughs> going to be 24 the day before the Playhouse Aww. shows it. So, so I'm going <laughs> to, I mean, I mean, I am inclined to like this. I mean, it isn't the slightly smug twee export-driven British comedy that the posters and the trailers would lead you to believe. And John Madden is the director who did Shakespeare in Love and The Debt most recently. He's a perfectly solid director. And you've got, no, a cast of, no, not to put too fine a point on it, most of them are late middle-aged and considering how, you know, youth-obsessed the film industry is, it's good to see a film which has got a slightly more advanced cast taking lots of money and it's clearly finding an audience not just among the saga crowd so I, I do think it's genuinely charming yes it's not perfect john madden doesn't make great films but it is genuinely charming i'm in the saga crowd so be be careful yes. number two is 21 jump street which you know remake of the 1980s cop show which is famous largely for the fact that it launched the career of johnny depp which we'll come on to in a slightly tangential way when we look at this week's cult film you know lots of retro jokes you know jonah hill channing tatum doing perfectly fine we sort of forget give uh, Jonah Hill for doing the sitter as a result of this. It's it's okay, but it's nothing more than okay. And at number one this week is The Hunger Games. Now, I went to see this on Monday, and I thought it was really, really great. Um, it was, it's been billed as, you know, Lord of the Flies for the Twilight Generation, slightly um, sort of uh, disparagingly. But I have to consider, you know, as someone who is a huge fan of the 1960s version of Lord of the Flies by Peter Brook, I think this is actually better than that. Oh. I wouldn't say that, no, because I no, do think that's a real classic. Yeah. I mean, like I say, when, like I said when we reviewed it last week, if you're a fan of 70s dystopian science fiction, you can spot lots of things. I mean, yeah. Yeah. there's a whole sequence where they present the tributes, and it is as though Tim Burton directed London Fashion Week with bits of the flesh from AI, and there's a little bit of Soylent Green, and a little bit of Schindler's List, and a little bit of Deliverance, and a little bit of Logan's Run, even, because there is a whole sequence which takes place in the woods, and it's a man and woman going off together, which is the whole middle section of Logan's Run. Um, but what impressed me about it was, so A, 
the film managed to have its own identity outside of these references and that someone actually took the time and the effort to make a science fiction blockbuster aimed at a teenage audience which traditionally patronized a lot in terms of science fiction which was smart and sophisticated and understood both the source material and the fan base it was very intense and very exciting jennifer lawrence is really terrific i mean she is a bona fide star now yeah so it's not the easiest thing, and it's certainly, if you've got children under 12, don't take them to see it, because there are difficult scenes in it. But for a mainstream sci-fi blockbuster, it's bloody brilliant. Good. And that's no pun intended. So, recommendations this week, then. Hunger Games, if you're over the age of 12. Um, the Woman in Black... Well, that's borderline. I think if you're under the age of 10, then don't go and see it. Otherwise, best exotic Marigold Hotel, and if you like schmaltz, we bought a zoo. So and if you haven't been to it yet, the Muppets! Indeed. Which is it? great. And there must still be people who haven't, since yeah, it's still in the indeed. charts. It's doing very well indeed. Yes. Right. Uh, thanks very much to Dave from Shipley for uh, emailing in. Always good to hear from you, Dave. Hello, Dave. Uh, let me just remind you that this hour is being sponsored by the North Sheffield Carriage Riding for the Disabled and NE Money. So thanks to both of you for sponsoring this hour. It is hour 15 of the Lionheart Radio 24 hour sponsored broadcast for the fifth birthday. And we're going to uh, have our cult film after a bit of Elton John. Listening to the Radiothon. And by the way, we are five years old. A good sing along one there, uh, Elton John, and Made in England. And talking about sing-alongs, you can't wait for the next track. Well, you must wait, because we've got a cult film to review. Yeah, for But so. specially requested by Daniel Mumby, it's going to be Doris Day! <laughs> it's not often you hear me say that. <laughs> no, indeed. Yes, but, uh, yeah, the significance <laughs> of Doris Day will become clear once we've talked about our cult film uh, for the X-rated slot, which is Heathers. Heathers. Now, I've been waiting to do this for ages and ages, and when I first selected this a uh, couple of months ago, and we had a discussion yeah. about the... The difficult content of it, and it eventually thought that this was the perfect slot yes. to do it. So, at long last, um, 1989 high school black comedy, which won the Best First Feature Independent Spirit Award in 1990. Uh, directed by Michael Lehman, who uh, subsequently did things like um, Hudson Hawk with Bruce Willis and Richard E. Grant. Um, the Truth About Cats and Dogs, um, that strange little comedy 40 Days and 40 Nights with uh, Josh Hartnett. And uh, most recently he directed episodes of True Blood on HBO, so you know, quite a variety of stuff. Scripted by Daniel Waters, who also wrote Hudson Hawk, but he's most famous for writing the script for Tim Burton's Batman Returns. Yeah. Which is the best of the original four Batman films. Sorry, my phone's going off in my pocket, but I shall be professional and ignore that. Um, it's famous for launching or helping to launch the career of Renona Ryder. She had previously done a couple of independent features and then got her first big supporting role in Beetlejuice, which was yep. another Tim Burton film. And both of, no, the three films of Beetlejuice, this and Edward Scissorhands, were all produced by Burton's then producer of choice, Denise DeNovi. So she was the kind of connecting yeah. link who got a rider cast in this. Subsequently to this, she got cast in The Godfather Part 3 as Michael Corleone's daughter, but she had to drop out, and that's why Sofia Coppola has to do that very awkward scene of falling to her knees outside the church and shouting, 
dad in a way that shows she clearly can't act. Yes. Not a bad director, though. Yeah. So, filmed on a budget of $2 million, took just over half that first time round. It didn't get very wide release in terms of number of screens. Also met with a rather lukewarm critical response. But it became a cult sensation after it was released on what was then home video and has since turned up on a number of lists. It was voted, uh, voted sorry, number five on Entertainment Weekly's list of greatest high school films and number 412 on Empire's list of the 500 greatest of all time, just above Finding Nemo and just below Spider-Man 2. Yeah. So it's an odd company to keep. Indeed, Those yes. two are kind of big, romping mainstream yes. films, uh, both of which incidentally are very good. So the story is... It's set in the fictional Westerberg High School in Sherwood, Ohio, and the school is divided into the various cliques, and the dominant clique is the Heathers, which consists of the malicious Heather Chandler, played by Kim Walker, the bulimic Heather Duke, played by Shannon Doherty, and the weak-willed cheerleader Heather McNamara, played by Lizanne Falk, and they're these three sort of bitchy high school types who run the school by a combination of cruelty and sex appeal. Uh, the film focuses on the character of Veronica Sawyer, played by Winona Ryder, who has somehow fallen in with the Heathers but is clearly uncomfortable hanging around with them because she's clearly much more intelligent and bookish yeah. than they are and she f hates how they've kind of put down all the people she used to be friends with. There's a character called uh, uh, Heather Dunstuck, whom they call Heather Dumptrap because of the fact that she's massively <laughs> obese. Yeah. The, her life changes, however, when a young tearaway called J.D., played by Christian Slater in his brief prime, rocks up at the school and on a bike wearing a leather jacket and pulls a, a loaded gun on two of the bullies called Kurt and Ram, who were the sort of jock American football yeah. types. And they are instantly attracted and end up having some kind of very twisted romantic fling. J.D. decides that the way to rid Veronica of the Heathers is to bump them all off and make it look as if it was some kind of suicide pact and so begins a downward spiral of murder and martyrdom which leads to JD basically trying to blow up the school and Veronica desperately trying to stop him. This sounds kind of a bit like if. This is <laughs> well, actually, it is interesting that you mention if because I do think that this is very much, it's the almost the American equivalent of if, not just because it's you know, about students taking over a school and yeah. climaxing in a massive showdown involving explosives, but but in terms of quality, I think that there's very little between the two films. I mean, yes, If has more significance in the counterculture movement and arguably yeah. it's better directed, but this is, you know, as far as American filmmaking comes, this is the closest you get. I mean, when you think of high school films in the 1980s, the instinctive thing is to think of the work of John Hughes. I mean, there are other efforts beside John Hughes. I mean, you think, you, you think of things like Gregory's Girl, which I yes. know you're absolutely enamoured by, and we'll talk about that next yes. week. Or if you go more to the American tradition, things like Fast Times at Regiment High, which was written by Cameron Crowe, whom we were talking about a few yeah. minutes ago. Uh, but generally speaking, you have, you know, the... To Tom Hughes, the John Hughes staple things like, you know, Sixteen Candles, The Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which create this very sort of light-hearted, nostalgia-tinged, pastel-shade view of what high school was like. And, no, and yeah, I typical, have, typical Hollywood, you mean? Yeah, well, the thing is, I have no problem with John yeah. Hughes as a filmmaker. I think yeah. that, no, in his prime during the mid-1980s, he was a very skilled filmmaker and he did yeah. capture the awkwardness of adolescence very well. The problem is that by the time you get past Ferris Bueller, like so many trendsetters, John Hughes was being imitated almost to the point at which his original works looked like parodies of themselves. So yeah. you ended up with films, you know, in the case particularly of John Hughes' later works, in which the people were clearly twice as old, or maybe even three <laughs> times as old as the people, yeah. the teenage. I mean, if you look at a film, for instance, like Dangerous Minds, in which Michelle Pfeiffer goes 
uh, back into a, a run-down school to teach the kids, and all the kids are played by sort of 40-somethings in no yeah. slightly tacky jeans. So in the midst of all this sort of pastel-shaded gaiety in which everyone gets along, you know, in the case of the Breakfast Club, everyone works out their problems, and there's no fighting, and there's nothing nasty at all. Heather's is like someone coming along with a massive flask of sulfuric acid <laughs> and saying, you know what? All of this is absolute nonsense. Let's just tear through it. High school has got a dark and bitchy underbelly. School was not the best time of your life. Actually, most people are really, really horrid, and let's have fun about it. I mean, it is really dark, edgy comedy, and like a lot of really edgy comedies, like, for instance, Dr. Strangelove, you're in that point where you're laughing, but you're also squirming because yeah. you can't quite believe. And do you remember when I talked about um, Spetters, the Paul Verhoeven Oh, yes, film, yes. And had that you know, strange experience of watching it on a train, and if you know about Spetters, there are sort of very explicit amounts of nudity in certain <laughs> sections and sort of feeling rather uncomfortable. Well, I had a very similar experience with Heathers because I was watching that on, on the train down to a trip to London, and I I don't know what the rest of the people in the carriage must are thinking because I was sitting in front of this laptop trying to stop myself laughing just going <laughs> because it was just so hysterically funny and yet yeah. so uncomfortable and I do think it is second only to Lindsay Anderson's if as the greatest high school film yeah. of all time so here's why first of all you've got the artistic ambition of it. I mean, John Hughes films, particularly the later stuff, were accused of being very artistically conservative. You know, same kinds of plots, same characters, same basic environments. And later on, they would go for, let's let's play to the cuteness factor rather than actually pushing the envelope and looking what teenage yeah. stuff is like. I mean, that sort of thing comes in cycles. I mean, you could argue that John Hughes was essentially a reaction to the whole thing of Porky's and Animal House, which portrayed students as essentially sex-mad idiots who had nothing better to do than get drunk and get laid. Um, Heathers has a very genuine artistic ambition behind it. Waters wrote it with Stanley Kubrick in mind because he thought that Kubrick was the only guy who could, well, A, get away with a film that was three hours long and yeah. B, make the definitive high school film because, you know, it was at the point of Kubrick's career where he basically let other filmmakers have a go at a genre and then he would come in and do the definitive version so you know with and in the case of full metal jacket he let oliver stone make platoon yeah. and make a mess of it and then he said actually oliver this is how you do a film about vietnam <laughs> rather than just lecturing at people let them revel in the horror um layman had made a splash on the cult circuit with a short film called beaver gets a boner which I think tells you all about the kind of attention-seeking guy that he was and is, and he got the, the gig for Heathers very much through his relationship with Denova, who saw the short, or maybe just saw the title of the short, and thought, hmm, yeah, he's the kind of guy we want to know. I mean, like I said, she was hot property in Hollywood because of the success of Beetlejuice, and she gave Winona Ryder the script, and she said it's the greatest script I've ever read, and to this day, if you interview Winona Ryder, it's hard to stop her either reciting lines from the script or asking if there's going to be a sequel, because yeah. she just loves that role so much. Um, if you look at the visuals of Heathers, they are a very conscious departure from the, the John Hughes. I mean, you have the opening sequence where the Heathers are in Veronica's back garden playing croquet to the sounds of K Sarah Sarah. Unfortunately, it's not the Doris Day version because Doris Day's estate wouldn't let them use the rights because of, <laughs> I wonder why. Because of, the, or the, because of no Doris Day's position on obscenity and profanity and uh, anything else that was slightly offensive. But uh, we we can. Yes, exactly, and I will in a few minutes. But uh, I'm not going to disappoint her. So you have those kind of things in which it's clearly pastel shades, but they're being sort of, the tones get darker and more plastic and more nasty. And that opening sequence where, you know, it starts off with the three girls sort of walking along in dresses saying, I oh, know it's your turn, Heather. No, it's you, Heather. And then it cuts to Veronica buried up to her neck in the grass being hit on the head with a croquet ball. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of tone yeah. they're going for. And, you know, there's a sort of dreamy feel to the opening set where all the edges of the frames are in soft focus. And so it feels like... 
the sense of unease that you get watching Blue Velvet on it's too perfect, it's yeah. too chocolate boxy. It's a bit like the Stepford Wives, actually. You can yeah. link back to that as well. Um, and little by little, the colours do grow harsher and darker, culminating in a dream sequence which actually rivals Suspiria for how lurid its reds are. And then uh, this, you have... Winona Ryder's passing resemblance to Jessica Harper's protagonist in Suspiria because of the long sort of fairy tale black hair and the use of reds and blacks, yeah. which, you know, if you know anything about the language of Giallo, Argento and his predecessor Mario Bavo did that stuff very much, and there's a great joke in that heaven sequence which we'll come to a little later. But the visuals do play a part in dismantling that preconception of people say, oh, school, best years of your life, absolutely fantastic, you only get them once, and so forth, basically saying, no, actually, that's absolute um, it depicts the various cliques at Westerberg High, you know, the jocks, the nerds, the bullies, and of course the Heathers, with that perfect balance of the real and the extreme. I mean, when I review films on here, you often say, isn't that just going over the top? Yeah. And in the case of Heathers, it's delightfully <laughs> over the top, but it has enough of a real resemblance to the kinds of people we used to know, so we can look at them and think, yeah. okay, well, even if we didn't know someone who was so bitchy that they killed people, we can see traces of the people we used to know and therefore it doesn't matter that yeah. it's so exaggerated. There is that sort of, the Heather's look is so sort of uptight and immaculate and it does perfectly encapsulate all those teenage girls who played on the affections and the fears of others to basically hide their own securities. I mean, if you're a fan of Mean Girls, the Lindsay Lohan film from about nine years ago, Heather's is right in the back of that, just the look of the plastics is very much yeah. inspired by the Heather's. I mean, the script of Heathers is absolutely terrific, and this is where the profanity comes in. So, no, yeah. 18 certificate contains very difficult subject matter, you have been warned. I think, you know, there are, the script, if you look at Daniel Waters' script in isolation and you put it next to anything that Tarantino was doing in the same period, I think it's actually better than what yeah. Tarantino was doing. I mean, some of the one-liners have become iconic. There's a moment in which they're going around um, the cafeteria in a sort of pastiche of the... the um, the recruitment scenes in Full Metal Jacket where Arlie Ermey is shouting at all the grunts yeah. and um, Veronica says, no, I don't understand, why is it, Heather, we can't just you know, hang out with different kinds of people and Heather just looks at her with an icy look and goes, me gently with a chainsaw. Do I look like Mother Teresa? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's no, that's yeah. the kind of turn. Um, some of the lines in it are, are hilariously surreal. There's a moment where the two bullies, Kurt and Ram, who are, like I say, these jock types, have, they've ha they, JD and uh, Veronica have made it look as if they've killed each other in a suicide pact, and the way they've done that is by planting mineral water at the scene of the yeah. crime. And it cuts to the funeral scene where Kurt's father is standing over open coffins in their full North American football gear and says, you know, I love you, Kurt, even though you were a pansy. My son's <laughs> a homosexual and I love him. I love my dead gay son. And you just can't, even yeah. though it's so kind of scabrous and odd, you just can't stop yourself sort of laughing even if it's awkwardly. And in that same sequence where Winona Ryder has a sort of premonition of what heaven's going to be like and Heather Chandler, the first one that she's killed, comes down dressed in sort of red and wings and she <laughs> says, what's heaven like? Saying, oh, it's so boring. If I have to sing Kumbaya one more time, I swear <laughs> I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> exactly, I mean, yeah. you're laughing now. And, That's good. And one. even someone like me who is sort of a hardened pro and likes black comedy as a bread yeah. and butter, there are moments in which even I wince. I mean, there's a moment where J.D. and, um, you know, Winona Ryder are sitting in the car after killing Kurt and Ram and says, you know, and he is trying to argue, saying, you know, look, you did this because you wanted to believe this. No, look, the football season is over. Kurt and Ram had nothing but to offer the school but date, rape, and AIDS jokes. And, you know, you, you wince because you yeah. think, oh, but also you can see exactly where he's coming from. 
that's most of the profanity out of the way. So if you have turned down for 30 seconds, you can turn up again now. But although all of those lines that I've mentioned have a sort of shock outre yeah. quality, the best lines in Heathers are actually those that tap into the teenage angst and the low self-esteem of all the characters. I mean, there is a sequence in in the girls' toilets early on where the Heathers are all sort of doing their makeup and Heather Duke, who is bulimic, is, you know, they're waving sort of chicken drumsticks in front of her saying, do you feel the urge to purge? And then when she's finally chucking her guts up in the corner, off screen, of course, that's yeah. one thing the film doesn't show, Heather Chandler just rolls her eyes and goes, Heather, bulimia is so 1987. <laughs> and again, it's yeah. just, you know, that taps into the whole thing of you know, the pressures of high school and the yeah. hypocrisies of the in-crowd, and it does it very well. It is utterly merciless towards its character and, and its audience. I mean, every time you think, okay, it's reached its limits, it's not going to go any further, it's drawn a line in the sand, it says, actually, no, let's move the line to here, and I'm going to pull you in head first after me. I mean, you, you adjust the tone of Heathers very quickly after the first ten minutes, but the jokes become sort of darker and nastier yeah. with every turn. I mean, one of the best moments in it from that point of view is, again, they're slumped in the car, JD and Veronica having committed a second murder. And Veronica takes the cigarette lighter out of the car and puts it in the palm of her hand to burn herself Oof. because she can't stand it. Yeah. And rather than sort of taking it away, JD just grabs her hand and uses her smoldering palm to light his cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, you just think, yeah. you've just crossed the line and then just yeah. rub the line out. I mean, we are dealing with a film that deals with the subject of teenage suicide, but just as Monty Python's Life of Brian is a film about blasphemy rather than a blasphemous film, yeah. you know, as Eddie Izzard famously said, Jesus is a very different spelling to Brian. Yes. <laughs> um, so Heathers mocks the media presentation of teenage suicide rather than the act of teenage yeah. suicide itself. I mean, it handles that subject with a very ruthless intelligence showing how suicide can produce these bizarre psychological reactions where enemies become yeah. martyrs and completely disparate groups of people get united and it also shows how the parents and the media approach to it is completely irrelevant i mean there's a there's a recurring song in it where you know like um those sort of uh, anti-smoking songs that you sometimes get like on episodes of south park where yeah. it's completely cheesy so much so that the kids aren't going to absorb it and there yeah. is a song called teenage suicide brackets don't do it which is <laughs> which is done in a sort of upbeat way like all the psa films about no anti-drugs yeah. in which they yeah. actually you no know, they don't have the side effect and it does handle that subject matter in a way which is visceral and complex and stimulating and in terms of handling it i do think it no it's as good as we need to talk about kevin and yeah. again that is very high praise it does seem odd to say it considering that now i've talked about a film which does come across as very dark and very outre and very sort of Ugh. But it is actually quite a moral film. I mean, it does entertain all the fantasies of all those frustrated yeah. or bullied teenagers. No, everyone goes through school wishing, you know, saying, oh, I wish he was dead. I wish he'd just leave me alone. Why can't I just kill him? Or something along those lines. And it does show the central character of Veronica coming through triumphant, not by killing all these people, yeah. but actually by being true to herself and asserting her own way of treating people, which is actually being nice. I mean... It is a coming-of-age film in that sense. So you have J.D. as the physicalization of all Veronica's times she's thought that. It's like, it's like having the little devil on his shoulder saying, yeah. basically, I can give you all the satisfaction you want, but the thing is, it won't be you. You'll sort of lose yourself yeah. in the process. And when she, when she defeats J.D., it's a recognition that she doesn't have to be a bitch or a psycho or a sort of, you know, glitzy yeah. plastic girl to get through life. And the last scene is her and Miss Dump Truck, as the Heathers call her, sort of bonding and agreeing to go out for drinks the next weekend. You know, it is like 
let the right one in, in the sense that it, it takes that sort of burgeoning adolescent rage and physicalizes it outside yeah. of the character so you can see the destructive effect that it has, and it does it very, very well. There is some debate over the ending of the film. I mean, the original ending that Lehman had envisaged but was never actually shot saw that the school was being blown up. Yeah. And then all the characters would reunite in a massive prom in the middle of heaven and everyone was going to be yeah. getting along. And in hindsight, even for me, that would have been a little fanciful. Cause it, do you remember the Christmas in Heaven scene from Monty Python's Meaning of Life? Yes. Where yeah. all the angels are wearing fake yeah. boobs and everyone's yeah. sort of being incredibly false jolly. And so it doesn't quite work, that yes. scene, in either film. And the current ending is perfect because it does... You get the big explosion of the school, well, not yeah. quite blowing up, but almost blowing up, and you get, um, you know, J.D. combusting and then Veronica using his remains to light her cigarette <laughs> in yeah. a sort of strange reversal of fortune. But it is ushering in a new phase of her life, and it does that very well. I mean, in terms of the performances, I think Winona Ryder is terrific, it, you know, at the early point of her career where she was very good at playing moody outsiders, yes. and, if, and if you like her more hysterical stuff, and like Black Swan, you will love she this. She is good. Yeah. Christian Slater was in his prime, I mean, he'd yes. just done Pump Up the Volume, which uh, is very underrated. a great underrated. actor. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he did base his performance largely on Jack Nicholson in The Witches of Eastwick, and he does that sort of smarmy, neurotic stuff very well. I mean, it's an interesting story about the casting, which is that when layman was putting it together he originally wanted brad pitt to play jd and jennifer connelly who had just done labyrinth of course to Couldn't play you imagine the, uh, brad pitt doing well this is the thing like he, was, he was refused the part for being too nice yes to say, i mean this is of yeah. course pre thelma and louise where of course yeah. you know he won over millions of fans by taking his shirt off for half an hour um but no and then when he when connelly dropped out heather graham was offered one of the roles but because she was only 17 she needed yeah. permission from her parents and they said no i don't think that's the kind of thing you want to be doing on your weekends yeah. And there is rumours, apparently, that Slater and Ryder had a bit of a fling on set, and Slater Ooh. still carries a candle for her, uh, even though okay. she has you know, since gone on to date Johnny Depp and is now quite happily married. So, in summary, it is a terrific dark comedy, which is unrivaled in American high school films, and for me is on a par with If. It's great performances, outstanding script, sharp direction. It is a shame that, out of all the people involved, that only Ryder and Slater really had any careers after this, but after seeing this film, you will never look in high school anyway again, and if you put this and if on a double bill, you've got a perfect evening. I think you like that film, didn't you? <laughs> I think that's an understatement of the decade. Okay, just a quick reminder, this hour is being very kindly sponsored <laughs> by our friends at Any Money and North Sheffield Carriage Riding for the Disabled. Thank you to both of you for putting in money to keep, help keep community radio on the air. And as promised, come on, you're going to be singing along to this one at home, aren't you? This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. Yes, what a good sing-along one there. Doris Day, K. Sarah, Sarah, and a bit of a history to that one. Come yeah, on, tell us. That is featured in uh, the film, uh, the remake, I should say, of The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1956, which is famously the only film that Alfred Hitchcock ever remade, because he did a 30s version with Peter Lorre in, which was actually not that bad. There you are. Yes, and also the only good film Doris Day ever made, but yeah. the less said about that, the better. So next Saturday... I'm going to be in Manchester, but it's we will be staying with high school. I'll be doing it down the line, and we will go for one of your favourites. Yeah, Gregory's Girl! Exactly. Oh, D. Hepburn. <laughs> D. Hepburn. Okay, stop fantasy. Did you ever use... No, you'd have been too, too young to watch Crossroads in its heyday, wouldn't you? Yes. The you mean the original sets. version of the... The original version, yes. not the... 
Yeah. And the well, I was going to say the original <laughs> best, but when you're talking about crossroads, there's no real. Yes. You can't really get away with that. Yes, but do you remember that those of a certain age will remember Dee Hepburn when she was the uh, receptionist at the motel. Okay, I remember Claire <sighs> Grogan from Red Dwarf though, because of course yes. she is the the early Kachansky before Chloe and Etta go. Yes. So yes. So that's ah, nice that's me happy for tonight. Exactly. <laughs> that makes up for all the darkness of Heather's <laughs> Yes, in indeed. Right. Uh, thanks very much to uh, Andrew and Rose for. Or, uh, emailing in. Oh, uh, hey they want to take you to the movies tomorrow. Oh, really? And they say they're going to call you obsessively after the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might just turn my phone off. No, I won't. Yes. It'd be great to hear from you guys, and thanks very much for listening. Right, shall we uh, have a look at this week's um, new releases? Good idea. And we'll start with the one with the longest title, because it's getting late and I can't read anymore. The Pirates! In an adventure with scientists. Yes, which is also and known... two exclamation marks. Exactly. Um, so it must be good. It is. Um, it's also known in some territories as Pirate's Band of Misfits, for no apparent reason. Maybe the Americans have a trouble with scientists, right. but that's a very cheap joke. Uh, it's the latest from Aardman Animations. So you Hugh Grant! Exactly. You picked a very good one to start David with. Tennant! Yes. Do you want to list the whole cast? or shall Martin we... Freeman! Yes! Go yes. on. Who is, of course, going to be... Bilbo Baggins yes. in The Hobbit. Later this year. The first part of which arrives at the end of this year and is yes. going to be absolutely brilliant. Yes, it will. Yeah, so this is the latest from Arpen Animations featuring Hugh Grant in his first animated role, uh, directed by Peter Lord, who also directed Chicken Run and produced uh, A Close Shave, which is the last of the short Wallace and Gromit films. Um, so the story is you have a pirate captain, played by Hugh Grant, who's called the Pirate Captain, who wants to be the king of the high seas, but is held back by the incompetence of both him and his motley crew. He enters the Pirate of the Year competition against his arch-rival Black Bellamy, who's played by Jeremy Piven, and he goes off in search for treasure, runs up uh, running into a diabolical Queen Victoria, played by, who else, Imelda Staunton. As it should be. Yes, and a scientist called Charles Darwin, who is played by David Tennant, and of course this is around the time that the Beagle was selling to yeah. uh, Mauritius, I think it was, where they discovered uh, all those other species. I mean, when we talked about Ardman's last offering last year, which was Arthur Christmas, I wasn't all that keen on it because I thought it wasn't that good as, you know, as, yeah. as a proper Ardman animation. Yeah. But this is much more like it. First of all, I mean, it's interesting. When Ardman made um, Flushed Away, which was their big effort with DreamWorks because, before DreamWorks and Ardman fell out for various yeah. reasons, they said that they had to make it entirely in CGI because of the way that they had to film water, and water, if you mix it with plasticine, basically wrecks the material, so you have yeah. to keep building and building. So this time they've got a film with lots of water, because it takes place on the high seas, yeah. but so much of it is stop-motion claymation, with CGI just in the background around of it. So you get all the sort of the classic Aardman look, but in the yeah. 21st century sensibility. It's got great jokes in the trailer, I mean, there's all sorts of talks about, and there's, there's a monkey who sort of reads stuff off cue cards and has sort of very funny sign yeah. languages. There's, you know, stories, you know, there's Charles Darwin tied up on the plank saying this could be the discovery of the century <laughs> and uh, no um hugh grant basically walking into shot and stroking yes. his beard all the time which is great like all the best arban stuff like curse of the wear rabbit there are so many little details in the edges of the frames that you don't see everything the first time around and you have to go and see it multiple times so i think no proper family film arban right back on form take the whole family this weekend and they will have an absolutely wonderful time but see it in 2d because the 3d is not necessary yeah has most 3D films aren't necessary. Indeed. Yes. But I wasn't going to dwell on that point, because no. that argument can get old hat. Yes, indeed. So, a very big cast list for our next one. I suspect not quite such a good film. We've got uh, Liam Neeson, Ralph Fiennes... Um, Fiennes. Sam... Fiennes, then. Uh, Sam Don't Worthy. call him Ralph, either, because you was... It's Ralph Fiennes. Ralph. 
Sorry, it is late. I forgive you. Carry on. <laughs> it says Ralph on my screen. <laughs> Just be glad he isn't here. Carry on. <laughs> Sam Worthington, Gemma Atherton, and it's called Wrath of the Titans. Yes, Wrath of the Titans, which is, um, <laughs> notice Titans. Hmm? I just corrected you again, sorry. Um, it's sequel you say tomato. And I say pyjamas, let's pull the whole thing <laughs> off. There's a fantastic sketch where um, it's uh, John Bird and John Fortune saying, you know, can you sight read music? And John Fortune starts singing, you know, I say potatoes and you say potatoes. And it goes <laughs> on and like that, and it's very funny. So this is the sequel to the 2010 blockbuster, which was itself a remake of the 1980s film by Ray Harryhausen, who did also did Jason and the Argonauts. The original was, I say the original, the 2010 version was filmed by Louis Leterrier, who did the Transporter series and uh, one version of Incredible Hulk. Uh, this is helmed by Jonathan Liebesman, who did Battle Los Angeles and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre The Beginning. So not a promising start. I mean, the, so the story picks up a decade after the last film, which famously the Titans came, but then they, they raised the Kraken and the Kraken did stuff and then the Kraken died. Mm. So this time there is a big struggle between the gods and the Titans. The gods being, you know, Zeus is played by Liam Neeson, Hades is played by Ray Fiennes, the rest are played by, you no know, other people, basically looking like they've wandered out of John Borman's Excalibur because all their clothes are a little bit too shimmery. Yeah. And, um... The gods are struggling because all the people on Earth are not worshipping them enough, so they don't have enough power, and the Titans are sort of raising up and, uh, you know, basically going to take over the world. Meanwhile, Perseus, played by Sam Worthington, who, of course, is demigod because he's the son of Zeus, I think, if my Greek mythology serves me correctly. He is. Um, he had a few sons. Yes. yes. Yeah, indeed, yeah. He was one of those guys. Um, <laughs> he uh, He's pursuing life as a fisherman and trying to forget his past, you know, by basically living this humble existence on Earth. But, of course, in the manner of these stories, it doesn't work out that way, oh. and he ends up having to go and fight the Titans <laughs> again. Um, Clash of the Titans basically epitomised everything that was wrong with a lot of modern blockbusters in the sense that it was long loud, boring, incoherent, and was in pointless 3D, and this is kind of more of the same. The problem with the 3D, no, apart from our reservations about it, is that it's retrofitted 3D, oh, which means you get a lot of stuff which of isn't worlds, in 3D, yes. and then something where, like, a claw will just randomly come out, and then yeah. it's gone, and it just looks really sort of pointy and horrible. I mean... The fact that one of the side effects of doing something in 3D, particularly retrofitted, is if you've got a massive monster on screen, because of the, the, the need to sort of redimensionalize it, you end up making the monsters actually smaller. So yeah. you've got the Titans, but they're actually quite midgets <laughs> once you look at them from a certain point of the screen, yeah. and that undermines it. I mean, unlike, for instance, the Ray Harryhausen ones, in which you have, for instance, the army of skeletons marching towards you in stop motion, which is very creepy, and they look exactly the same size as the actors. This has the opposite effect. The acting is pretty rubbish, to be honest. I mean, everyone's either hamming it up in the case of Liam Neeson and Rafe Fiennes, or <laughs> they're being unable to act full stop. I mean, Sam Worthington is at very best a poor man's Charlton Heston, and no, there's lots of valid criticisms about Charlton Heston's acting. So, no, it's incredibly boring, it's incredibly long and incoherent. Go and see Pirates and an Adventure with Scientists instead, because that's, no, shorter, sweeter and funnier and a much better use of your money. On to comedy and tiny furniture. Yeah, debut film by, by Lena Denham, and it's an independent film. I don't know how much attention this got at Sundance, but certainly that might explain its distribution. It's a semi-autobiographical story starring Denham as a, a girl called Aura, who is a college graduate who has moved back in with her family in New York after basically realising that a degree in film theory will get you nowhere. Something I'd like to dispute, even though that's not my <laughs> degree, but even so. So she moves back in with her mother and sister, who are played by um, 
Lena Denham's real-life um, mother and sister, Laurie Simmons and Grace Dunham, and you know, arguments, love interest, and jobs as a waitress ensue. Um, you know, it's typical indie-pindy-kooky stuff. You know, it sort of, it doesn't really go from A to B. It sort of shambles and rambles and warbles around for a little bit, and then it stops. Yeah. But to give credit where it's due, no, made for very little money, and it does look pretty decent. And although it's completely unremarkable from a plot point of view, uh, it is mildly amusing and nowhere near as annoying as it could have been. Right. Almost at the other end of the spectrum now, we've got a uh, documentary, which is Into the Abyss. Yeah, which is, the full title is Into the Abyss, A Tale of Death, A Tale of Life. It's the new documentary from Werner Herzog, and the famed Bavarian filmmaker of Sumreach, who has done things like um, Fitzcarraldo and A Gear the Wrath of God and Grizzly Man. His most recent uh, documentary was uh, the 3D film Caves of Forgotten Dreams. Uh, this time around, he's focusing on a triple homicide case in uh, Conroe in Texas, where he basically goes on to death row yeah. and interviews uh, a convicted murderer, 28-year-old Michael Parry, who, when they were making the documentary late last year, was eight days away from being executed by means I'm not sure about. It is a fascinating film in this, no, it, it's, it's very much a film which explores the ethics and the reasons of not just why people kill, but why capital punishment yeah. persists and whether it is actually not just a deterrent, but something actually moral for the state to do. And it talks about the psychology of people who've basically been waiting years and years on death row and often will actually die before they're executed. Yeah. And, you know, whether you perceive these people as, as having any humanity left. I mean, if, if you have an interest in films about sort of death row, like, you know, a lot of, you know, uh, well, The Green Mile is the best example, which is a terrific film, and there's all sorts of those things of, yeah. are they really people, or are they just shadows of themselves? And though Herzog has a really great eye with the documentary, I mean, he does have a thing for going into the darkest places of the human soul, but being incredibly humanistic and even-handed and yeah. not sympathetic because he himself has a very sort of dark picture of, of you know, the universe, you know, chaos, hostility and murder. Yes. But he is, you no, know, it's a very compelling piece of work. I'm not sure that it's as groundbreaking as some of his earlier documentaries, but if you can find it, it's worth watching. Sounds interesting. Mm. And another documentary to finish, which is uh, This Is Not A Film. Yes. Uh, even though it is a film. Technically it is, yeah. Yes, uh, it's an Iranian documentary directed by, and this is where the pronunciations come in, Jafar Panahi, who, That's very good. who previously directed a film called Offside, which was about um, Iranian women trying to sneak into a football match in which only men were allowed to watch. Yeah. And uh, it's also co-directed by uh, Mokhtaba Mertemazp, I think that's pronouncing it right, I hope I'm not offending anyone. Um, so why I'm saying that, having talked about Heathers, I don't really know. <laughs> so it's an, there is an extraordinary story about the production of this film, which is that it was apparently shot in secret, mostly on an iPhone, other brands are available, and it was smuggled out of Iran in a cake to get it to the Cannes Film Festival, where it subsequently got shown and got you know, yeah. subsequent distribution because of the fact that the director, uh, Jaffa Panahi, was under house arrest when he made it. And he was apparently, yeah. I think, basically the Iranian authorities took exception to some of the stuff in oh. offside. And, uh, and sentenced him to, I think his sentence was six years imprisonment and being unable to make films for 20 years. Gosh. Yeah, which, you know, is quite draconian. I mean, I don't know what you know, the state of Iranian prisons are like, but no, not being able to make films for 20 years is a tough yeah. call. You know, it's, so you have a film which is basically 85 minutes of Panahi talking under house arrest to Murtamaz about his sentence and talking about the nature of film and the meaning of film and the role of film in a society yeah. which, well, 
which certain parts of that society or political order forbid it, particularly in a film that's you know, telling you yeah. about the outside world. It's, you know, it's, it looks at the idea about sort of the film being a political weapon. It's about the politics of Iran and uh, whether any of this is justified. I don't know how wide a release it's going to get, and I think it will probably find its widest audience on DVD in the same way that our yeah. side did. Yeah. But it's a fascinating story of how it was made, and if the, if the, the content is anything like the story, then... It's damn good stuff. So, an interesting mix this week. Only really one turkey, so recommendations? Well, I mean, either of the two documentaries, I think the Herzog one, Into the Abyss, is going to be easier to get hold of. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, the recommendation is The Pirates in an Adventure with Scientists. Why not, indeed? Yes. Right. Okay, well, hopefully coming up at midnight is going to be uh, Cole Paxton. Yvonne Bale will be here starting Sunday at 1am. John Brown is going to have some boogie at 2 o'clock. Uh, Tamsin Robson on at 3 o'clock. I'm back uh, at 4 o'clock. I can't wait. You're really looking forward <laughs> yes, to Yes, indeed. Andrew and Sarah, Beauty and the Beast at 5 o'clock. Tony O is going to have breakfast at 6 o'clock. Saw him in the marketplace this morning. Hello, Tony. Hi, Tony. Um, Adam Wood uh, rounding off with the normal Sunday breakfast show between 7 and 9. So lots to look forward to through the night here on Lionheart Radio. Makes a change to repeated programmes, doesn't it? Yes, although yes. you can often hear us on repeat, which is quite nice. Yes, indeed. Right. Um, just a reminder that this hour has been very kindly sponsored for us by Any Money and North Sheffield Carriage Riding for the Disabled. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you for listening to Lionheart Radio, your very own community radio station. And it's good night for me. Good night for me too. It's been really good to do this of an evening for us. Yes, indeed. And um, I'll be back live between 8 and 11 next Saturday morning. You will be here Thursday? Thursday from 1 to 3 for a normal instalment of Mix and Match with Mumby. This yes. week's what just gone was rather truncated. Yes. And then we will be back uh, 10 to 11, the two of us together. Now, on the telephone. Yes, to talk about Gregory's girl. Right, OK. Taking us out, it's Altered Images. Well, it had to be, really, didn't it? I could be happy. Iron Heart Radio. Voice of Northumberland